Our second reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5. I will read verse 17 through 26. This is a, a section of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, for your help this day, we uh, ask that you would um, be gracious and generous with us. We pray that you would give us everything that we need uh, here in this uh, worship service. We pray that you would turn our minds from the busyness of the week and uh, that you would allow us to rest in you at this time. Uh, Lord, there is nothing that we need more than you. Uh, we do not live by bread, uh, but we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we pray this, we pray this morning that you would speak to us from your, from your holy scriptures. Um, sustain us, uh, guard us, protect us, bind us to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even as you bind us to yourself through the blood of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, uh, last night we had the fall festival, which was a, it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. I'm really tired uh, this morning. Some of you are tired as well. John Haynes is most tired, though. Uh, John Haynes uh, uh, drove this thing, and he put together a really good team of people. Uh, who stepped up and made a lot of stuff happen. 
the, the food that you heard about that's happening after this service in the boyer is more Brazilian barbecue, okay? So uh, they're going to cook it up out on the grill uh, while we're here in service, and you're going to go after this, after this service, and you will enjoy some Brazilian barbecue, which is really kind of amazing. Uh, yeah, it's a, it, it, it was amazing. We had a good time last night. This here, uh, this here is from the early service. Um, we had Pastor Dan's geography quiz. Raise your hand if you took the quiz. Raise your hand if you were humiliated by the quiz. <laughs> it was tough, okay? There were a lot of people who got zero uh, answers right, okay? It was, it was brutal, okay? But there was a girl in the fifth grade, uh, Julia Santos, Actually, she was the first person to take the test. And she got a, a high score, and the high score stood throughout the whole night. Okay, and I was a little worried, because like, you know, after a while I was cheering for her that she would have the high score. And I didn't want to like, you know, put the, a, I didn't want to jinx anyone else who was taken, but it turned out she had the high score. She did so well, in fact, that she said, well, you know, give, she, her first one she did was in Portuguese, and she she's, Give me the one in English, too. She's going to do that one. And she got the high score in that. Okay? Fifth grader beat the adults. Okay, the double champion. Uh, now, the, those of you who've got good eyes, you can see that the Brazilians answered 32.4% of the questions correctly. The Americans, 27.3. All right, so we got some work to do. Now what we did was we asked Brazilians about the United States and we asked Americans about Brazil. So now, you know, I don't know. We're, we're not going to do the same thing next year, but it was, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. How many castles does the flag of Jawa Pessoa have on it? It has three. Come on, people. Okay, it's got three... Three castles. Okay, you will you will never you will never forget that. Three castles on the flag of Jao Pessoa. You've probably never seen that flag, but you'll you'll go you'll Google it a little bit later. So uh, thank you, John. It was it was terrific. The weather was not with us, um, but we had a good time anyway, and we met we went we met new people, which is what we were there for. Well, we were there to have fun too. All right, so um, <coughs> We are in the next to last chapter of the book of Numbers. I know that some of you are beginning to grieve the passing of this old friend. Okay, we've been in the book of Numbers uh, all of this year. Uh, we're, in the, we're in the next to last chapter. Uh, next week's chapter is kind of a coda stuck on uh, the book. So in some sense, this is kind of the real ending of the book. Um, and I want to talk to you uh, a little bit about it. Uh, there are, the, the book talks about the towns of the, of the Levites. Now, you remember the Levites are the priests, so they're the clergy. And uh, God says that you're going to set aside 48 cities just for the Levites. Now, the Levites, uh, they don't have jobs outside of being clergy people. Okay, so, you know, they're not farmers, they're not herders, uh, they're depending for their income uh, on the support of other people. And so they get these towns that are given to them, 
which is how they're going to live. And around the town, uh, there's a certain amount of pasture that's for their personal animals. Now, I'm guessing these would be their donkeys for traveling on, maybe a uh, milk cow or something like that. But it's, it's, they're not herds. This is a small pasture. In fact, if you do the calculation on the area around uh, the towns that they get, it's only 200 acres. Okay, so this is like an average farm in Lancaster County, 200 acres, would be, the, would be uh, the amount of land that they had. Now, they don't have their own land, uh, but there is this process by, uh, by which the clergy, uh, by which the priests are supported by the whole society. Now, in the United States, we had this idea of the separation of church and state, okay? Those of you who are from Europe, you're more familiar with what's called the established church. So if you go to England, for example, uh, the, the Church of England is the established church. It's actually supported by the government of the country. And the Church of England uh, owns a lot of land, and they own a lot of uh, uh, rental units. You can rent an apartment from the Church of England. And all of that money goes to support the work of the church. Okay, so this is, uh, this is a way to organize your church in a situation where you haven't separated church and state, which would have been the case um, uh, for Israel. So the, so the Levites get 46 towns that are, are given to them. Uh, everything that they need is going to be provided for by the other tribes. They live in these towns, but six of these towns are set up as cities of refuge. I think our translation called them cities of safety. Okay. All right. And uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but basically the idea is if you're, if, if you're on, if you've killed somebody and you're on the run from the Avenger, you can run to this city and you can stay in this city and you can be safe. Okay, so the priests live there, they're living there with their family, plus a bunch of people who've killed other people. Alright, so it's kind of an interesting place, an interesting place to live. So let's talk about, let's talk about the law regarding killing people. So we make a distinction between murder and manslaughter. Okay, murder and manslaughter. In both cases, somebody's dead. All right. Murder, of course, uh, is outlawed in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not murder. But here in the passage that we read this morning, uh, the punishment uh, for that crime is specified. If you are a murderer, you must die. All right, you must die. It's repeated, I think it's repeated four times uh, in this passage. You're not allowed to take an alternate punishment. So, for example, you can't take a cash payment. If you murdered somebody, the family's not going to bring a civil wrongful death suit against you and sue you for $33 million, as a certain person who killed somebody got sued for. All right? That's not an option. If you killed somebody, if you murdered somebody, under, under the law of Moses, you must die. The reason is given for us there at the end of this passage um, in verses uh, 33 and 34. I'm going to read that for you. 
This is the reason why murderers may not be allowed to live. Do not let your land be polluted with innocent blood. If a person murders someone else, the only payment for that crime is that the murderer must be killed. There is no other payment that will free the land from the crime. I am the Lord. I will be living in the country with the Israelites. So don't make it unclean with the blood of innocence. You remember when the first murder that happens, Cain kills Abel. And the blood goes into the ground. And the Bible tells us that somehow the blood called out to God. God heard the blood of the innocent person uh, and, and had to deal with that. And so there is this uh, requirement that the blood of the innocent must be somehow dealt with or somehow atoned for. And the way that it's atoned for is by the death of the murderer uh, uh, himself. This is also connected to the fact that the person who has died has been made in the image of God. Okay? The value of each human life is incalculably high. All right? Nothing higher than the value of a human life. And one of the ways that we recognize or regard or respect the value of the human life is that if somebody takes a human life willfully, they have to pay for it. With their, with their own life. Now, not every killing is a murder, okay? Murder is intentional, and murder is also hateful. And so here in the passage that we read, you know, there's a mention of, you know, if you do it with, a, with an iron weapon, if you do it with a really large stone, if you do it with a really big stick, if you hated that person, Okay, then you're involved uh, in, in a situation of murder. There's some kind of malice and there's uh, an intentionality in it. Manslaughter, however, is accidental. And so the law of Moses sets up this mechanism for dealing uh, with both of these cases. Uh, in the cases of murder, we can talk about that first. In the cases of somebody uh, uh, who has murdered somebody, there has to be at least two witnesses before the person uh, can be executed. Okay? One witness, not good enough. Nobody saw it, circumstantial evidence, nobody's, nobody's going to be punished for that. Okay? So there have to be two eyewitnesses to the event, and if there are two eyewitnesses, uh, that person will be put to death. Interestingly, the person is put to death not by the state, but by somebody uh, who, I mean, it's translated variously, I forget how it's translated in, in our version here, but it's the blood avenger. In your family, there would be someone, maybe the biggest, strongest guy, who was responsible for defending your family. And if somebody hurt your family, they would go after the person who hurt your family. This was also the person, by the way, if somehow you were captured in war and taken off someplace and were made a slave, they would come after you and rescue you from being a slave. Or if you got poor and had to sell yourself as a slave, they would be the one who would arrange to collect money to buy you back out of slavery. Okay, so the, the, the blood avenger in some sense is the champion for your family. 
and they would defend your rights uh, and they would protect you. And this position uh, was recognized within, within the law, even though it's happening at the family level. So there has to be testimony of two people uh, in the case of a murder. Uh, the, the execution itself would be uh, meted out by a family member um, <clears throat> called, the, called the blood avenger. Now in the case of somebody who was guilty of manslaughter or who claimed to be guilty of manslaughter, if you killed somebody, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take off running and you're going to run to one of these cities of refuge. There are six of them. They're distributed throughout the country. Three on, on the one side of the Jordan River, three on the other side of the Jordan River. You've killed somebody. You go running for the city of refuge. And once you get inside the walls, you're safe. All right? You're safe inside the walls. And then you have to be tried. Okay, so there's going to be some kind of court proceeding to determine, the community will determine whether or not you had, uh, in fact, uh, committed, committed murder. Now, if they decided that the, that the killing that you had done was accidental, was not murder, then uh, you could just remain in the city. All right? If you left the city, the blood avenger could come after you and he would be allowed to do that. But if you stayed in the city, you would be safe and you would stay, into, you would stay in the city until the high priest died. And I guess when the high priest died, everything would be reset and then you could do whatever you needed to do. So it's a very kind of curious system that's set up. There is a kind of a balance here between responsibility and creating an opportunity to, to, to protect uh, the innocent. There is, an, uh, there is no possibility of somebody being convicted of murder without two eyewitnesses. Um, those who have killed somebody accidentally, uh, they are going to be protected also from, uh, from the law that's going, that's going on here. So I want to talk now about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, our reading from uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5 is a section of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount uh, is the longest, uh, well, sermon or discourse that Jesus gives in the New Testament. And uh, it's very well known and it is often quoted. Um, and uh, what you see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus interprets the law of the Old Testament in a way that it actually becomes more stringent. Now, some people think of Jesus as more lenient than those old Jews. But if you read your Bible, you'll discover Jesus is actually stricter than the old Jews. Let me read it for you. You heard that it was said to those of old, namely back in the Old Testament, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's what you heard. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. All right? So 
Keeping the Old Testament law, don't kill somebody, that's relatively easy. Okay, you don't have to work too hard to not kill somebody. But how hard do you have to work to not be angry with your brother? That, that's really tough. How, how hard do you have to work to not insult your brother? How hard do you have to work to not call someone a fool? All right? That's Jesus' standard for murder. Jesus is saying that hating your brother is like murdering your brother, and the punishment's the same. Now, which law would you prefer to operate under? I'll take the law of Moses. I can't keep that law of Jesus. That law of Jesus is way too hard. So what's going on here? I thought that Jesus was all about grace. I thought Jesus was the one who's preaching the gospel. How is it that the law of Jesus is actually more difficult than the law of Moses? I should say, for full disclosure, that there are a couple of theories about this, but I'm going to give you mine. There are those who argue, and I agree, that the law closes at the cross and not before the cross. Okay, That the law, the era of the law, closes with the cross but not before the cross. And Jesus gives us a clue to this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. It isn't that Jesus all of a sudden showed up in Galilee preaching and that the law of Moses didn't exist anymore. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. And I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, what, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Okay? So during the life of Jesus, the law is still in force. And in fact, Jesus has amplified the law. What Jesus does is he makes the external law something uh, uh, internal. It's not so much about what I do in the world. It's about what's going on in my heart. Okay? Jesus is requiring us to examine our heart and our motivation in a way that, frankly, the law of Moses doesn't require you to do it. Okay? In the law of Moses, you can hate your brother just as long as you don't knock him over the head with an axe. All right? It's actually easier. Jesus says, you know, what I'm really concerned about here is the condition of your heart. So how do we get from the law to the gospel? Well, Jesus says that you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness is higher than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of course, are the best of the Jews. These are the Jews who do a really good job of keeping the law. And so, first of all, Jesus has raised what the law is requiring, that it's requiring not just that you don't act in the world in the bad way, but that you not even think bad thoughts. And then he says, you're, you've got to be following that so well that you're actually better than even the people who do this as their specialty. How's that going to be possible? The answer actually comes after the cross. And I think it's important for us to understand uh, how we get from there, from the one place to the other. In Romans chapter 3, 
Paul is laying out the gospel for us. Paul is explaining what it is that we celebrate when we celebrate the gospel. And in Romans 3, 19, 20, somewhere around there, Paul says there, has, there is a righteousness that's separate from the law that's been revealed. Okay? Now there's a righteousness that's from the law. Okay? If you're a law-abiding citizen, that's righteous, that's good. You should do that. But Jesus has but there's a law that, but there's a righteousness that's been revealed that's apart from the law and this is a righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so even if you're basically a good person, you still are a sinful person. The Bible says that None are righteous, no, not one. I mean, you might be better than your neighbor, you might not be a terrible person, but according to the biblical standard, you're not righteous. All right? And so if you think you're going to make it to heaven on your own righteousness, then you're going to have to get a different Bible. The, the Bible we have won't get you there. Okay? The Bible teaches that every single person has, has fallen short of the standard that God has set, and so then how can we be righteous? Well, it turns out that Jesus lived a perfect life. 100%. Didn't do anything wrong. 100% right. Jesus lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross and paid the death as though he were a sinner. And on that cross, he bore your sins. Okay? Your, the sins of the church were put on Christ. And Christ paid the penalty for the sins of the church. And when we become believers in Jesus Christ, there's an exchange that happens. My sin goes to Christ, but the righteousness of Christ comes to me. And when I receive the righteousness of Christ, which I receive in faith, guess what? That righteousness is higher than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Okay? The righteousness of Christ is better than the righteousness of the best person doing it on their own. All right? But we don't receive that, we, we, don't, we don't perform that righteousness ourselves. We receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. So the righteousness that we need to be saved, the righteousness that we need in order to see the kingdom of heaven, is Christ's own righteousness. And we receive it in faith. Our sin goes to him, his righteousness comes to us. The Bible uh, describes the saints in heaven and they're, they're wearing white robes of righteousness. Those are borrowed robes, okay? They're not our robes. Okay? Those, are, those are the robes of Christ. Christ was perfectly righteous and by faith in him, his clothes become our clothes. Take on the righteousness of Christ. One of the things that happens when we become a born-again believer is, is that we are united with Christ. And what belongs to Christ then belongs to us. And so then the perfect righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness. This is sometimes hard to believe because, you know, we walk around and we know that we're not perfect. And yet I, 
I kind of want to assure you that if you've placed your faith in Christ, actually you are perfect. The church of Jesus Christ is holy. Okay? It's not your holiness. It's Christ's holiness. All right? But it really, it does belong to us by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. So we have the Old Testament law. <coughs> and one of the questions that Christians always have to answer is, well, if we're not saved by that law, why did God bother to give it? Why didn't God just begin with Jesus and skip Moses? And I think the answer to that is, is that the law reveals to us the condition of our own heart. It reveals to us the mind of God, the character of God. The law shows us the kinds of things that God likes. All right? And the third thing it reveals to us, it reveals to us that we need a savior. One of the things that God requires of us is that we have a relationship with him. Okay. He wants to be connected to us. In the garden, before things got off track, we had a regular and easy relationship with God and then sin entered the mix and things got kind of haywire. But God always had that desire to restore the relationship with us. And it's in that relationship with Christ that we then have our relationship with God the Father restored. And if we think that we're good enough on our own, we never run to Christ. Okay? It's really important for us to read the law and to realize that we've failed and to feel convicted for that sin. Everybody who's a born-again Christian, at some point in their life, has, has felt convicted of sin. All right? It's the bad news before the good news. The bad news is, is that you're a sinner and you deserve hell. The good news is, is that Christ lived a perfect life and died a death that can take away your sin. Those who want to get to the good news, you can't skip the bad news. The bad news is about who you are. The bad news is that actually you're not as good as you think you are. Jack Miller, a, a Presbyterian preacher here in this area, he used to say you, that, that you're a whole lot worse than you think you are, but that you're loved way more than you ever knew. Okay? The law reveals to us our brokenness and our neediness and our failures. And the gospel reveals to us, you know, God loves us so much that he's actually willing to die for us so that we can be restored into a relationship with him. And so we read and we honor uh, the Old Testament law that we read in the book of Numbers because it reveals to us God's own mind and heart. It reveals to us our own failure. And it reveals to us our need for Christ. I believe that that law continues during the preaching ministry of Jesus. That during the preaching ministry of Jesus, he continued to tighten the law. To tighten the law. Jesus used to be terribly frustrated uh, with the Pharisees who thought that they were good enough. 
You know, I've, I've, kept all of, I've kept all of those rules since I was a kid. You know, I'm, I'm a righteous person. And so Jesus tightens the screws on them and says, well, you know, maybe, maybe you haven't killed anybody, but what's your heart look like? Sometimes Jesus has to drive us to those, to those extremes before we, realize, before we realize our need of him. Our hope is in Christ alone. Our hope is not in keeping the law. Our hope is not in our own righteousness. But Christ preached the law himself. And we need to take that law seriously. Because the law reveals to us our need for Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for these stories of your people from so long ago. We thank you that you revealed to us how you want us to live. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit reveals to us that we haven't lived the way that we should have lived. And we thank you that you sent Jesus into this world to live a perfect life and then to die a death that we deserved. And Lord Jesus, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would give us the faith that we need to be united to you. May your righteousness become our righteousness. May we be holy in your eyes. We pray this for our own benefit, but we pray it for your glory as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.